0: spend the five bucks there isn't any more cost it's finished well of course is, is ex ante is the term here it's it's, it's prospective it's uh, uh ex ante is a latin term meaning beforehand right? ex post ex ante is you're looking totally actually just about to do something and you're looking ahead of what's going to happen consequences or the value to you or something ex post is looking back so an accountant looking back what happened last year last month And uh, so, costs are only ex ante. Before you spend it, you have to before you spend the money, before you spend your time, whatever the expenditure is. Before you make your choices, you have your value scales. You pick what you think is the top value to you. The cost is your second highest value. The cost disappears after you do it. After you do it, there's no more cost. You can go back and say, well, gee, I shouldn't have done that or did do that or something. That's some sort of history. It's not, it's not cost. So cost is ephemeral and disappears after the action occurs. Uh, there's a question, for example, of so-called sunk cost, where uh so for example, you, you uh, businessman spends ten thousand dollars on a product, produces a product, he'd like to sell it for ten thousand or for twelve thousand, let's say anticipates a profit of twenty percent or something. Uh, he's already spent the ten thousand. The product is there already, so we can't sell it for twelve thousand. Nobody wants to buy it. He sells it for five thousand, let's say. But the point so but if he says to himself I can't buy sell it for less than 10000 then I I I my cost would be excessive. I have to hold on to it and not sell it. It's pretty, pretty ridiculous because what his cost has already disappeared. It's too bad he spent the ten thousand, but he's done it already. Now he's stuck with this thing. Now he's to figure what's the mo- most value I can get for it. And so the uh, if it's five thousand, then it's five thousand. No more. $10,000 cost has already been expended. It's finished. Out the the, the window. He now tries to get what he can get for it. So, uh, as a result, they are basing something on costs uh, on what costs supposedly are as an entity that's non-existent. Uh, This goes in in welfare economics and politics. This is all over the place. For example. uh, uh, economists dealing with government projects will say, should the government do something? Should it build a dam? Or should it uh, you know, build a highway? Or should it uh, build a steel plant? Economists will say, well, you have to engage in cost-benefit analysis. You take the social benefits, you add it up, put a money money figure on it, take the social costs and add them up, put a money figure on that. And if the social benefits are higher in the social costs, you should do it. Government should do this project. If the social costs are higher in the social benefits, you shouldn't do it. Sounds terrific. There's Only two problems with it. One, nobody knows what the benefits are. Two, nobody knows what the costs are. Okay. Uh, benefits are psychic, subjective to each individual. Costs are also psychic, subjective to each individual. And there's no way to add them up. Uh, even an individual, it'd be tough to add them up because there's no unit. Certainly, across the, between individuals, you can't add them up. So there ain't no such thing as social costs. There ain't no such thing as social benefits because you can't add them up. That's, not, that's a great, great theory. Okay. But this is it. This is the main economic prop for most government action now among economists, even so called free market economists. Well, we add up the social costs, we add up the social benefits to see what what's what. And since there are no such thing as social costs and social benefits, because they're not addable and they're ephemeral and all that, that's, you know, so it sort of polishes off one, in like five minutes almost all welfare economics and that goes down, down the brink. Okay. Well, or just all economic justifications for most government action. Of course, sometimes you see that it sounds free market, sometimes they'll say, well, we add it up, it looks like it shouldn't build this dam because the social costs are greater than social benefits. So you say, well, gee, this guy's pretty good. He's blocking that dam. Okay, that's true. on the other hand, he's also justifying the other 90% of stuff that government wants to do. Uh, Okay, so the, uh, another thing about cost is looking at it, it, pure expenses now, just monetary expenses or costs of how much you have to pay out. The costs themselves are not given. The costs themselves, is, is another great Austrian insight, are determined by the utility of the value of the consumers place on the product. <coughs> In other words, uh, the uh, you have, let's say, there's a product, and entrepreneurs think the consumers will spend $10,000 on it, and $12,0, My original example. And therefore, they're willing to pay out ten thousand dollars on wages, labor, I mean, labor and uh, rent and, and material and whatever. Okay. So, anticipating often, they're willing to pay out the ten thousand because they expect their anticipated consumer demand is twelve thousand. So otherwise, they wouldn't be paying the ten thousand. They expect the consumers would only pay eight thousand dollars for this thing. They would not pay the ten thousand. The cost of production, just in terms of money. Payment is then the term, is not a fixed item, given, God given somehow, and, and long run and eternal. Cost of production is itself a function of how much entrepreneurs think consumers will pay for. So rather than saying that in the long run, uh, prices are determined by cost of production, consumer prices are determined by factor prices, or cost of production in terms of money, quite the opposite. In the long run, Cost of production will indeed equal prices, except it's the other, the causal factor the other way around. In the long run, the cost will be determined by how much entrepreneurs think consumers will pay for it. In so the long run, it's 10,000, it's 10,000 or 12,000, whatever, it's determined by the fact that entrepreneurs will, consumers will pay that amount. So the utility, uh, consumer utility determines cost rather than the other way around. So the, so the causal connection, <coughs> Goes individual value scales, <clears throat> utility, demand, price, consumer price, costs. So, that in addition to the whole problem of the long run and shifting, and, and in fact, there is no long run, all the rest of it. Another big hole in the uh, neoclassical neo- theory is which says that in the long run, costs determine prices. It's just exactly the opposite. Utility, Consumer utility determines costs as well as costs. Uh, now, you can see this is very very, very practical applications. That's uh, many conservatives, businessmen, etc. say that inflation, inflation is caused by costs going up. If costs go up, therefore, we have to raise prices. This, this is a typical, <coughs> this, by the way, the typical uh, PR excuse. Gee, I'm sorry, Mrs. Jones, I have to raise the price of bread, but I have to pay more for it. Otherwise, I'd love to give it to you. Yeah, That's nothing. Right. So this is essentially a PR, but many people believe it, unfortunately. Uh, the, uh, it's actually that the, the two questions, or two points to consider here. One is the price is determined by supply and demand, as I've already said. Where does cost come in? Where does, where does cost fit in this, this, this business here? It doesn't have that, that equation. If, if the supply is this much, this, like demand is that much, this is what the price will be, but also what the costs are. <coughs> the entrepreneurs spend pay for it if um, uh, the price will be, will be let's say 80 cents a loaf or a wonder bread if the cost of uh, money expenditures cost and cents of that go up to a dollar a loaf they just go out of business they can't, they can't just add on an extra 20 cents because if they could add on an extra 20 cents why do they wait for cost to go up what's well, cost got to do with it they may as well charge a higher price to begin with uh, <coughs> the, uh, nobody waits for cost to raise prices if you can raise the price and make a profit out of it, you'll do it to begin with. Yeah. Good example of that: the computer I bought six months ago. <coughs> I paid twelve hundred bucks for it. Mm-hmm. Now I can buy two for the price of one. Yeah. And you know what it costs them to produce them? What? Twenty to thirty bucks. Right. <laughs> yeah. And probably other costs of transportation and stuff, packaging. all that. Yeah. You're, Sales. Right. Sure. So, uh, so it's the other way around: prices determine cost rather than vice versa, and. Uh, and, consider, and also sort of things which have no cost at all, more or less, like Rembrandt's. It doesn't cost anybody to produce Rembrandt's, or Rembrandt's dead already. The painting is there, and yet it has a price. The price shifts, yeah. Nice example of that uh, too, would be something like uh, <coughs> energy. If the demand for energy goes up, then because, because the, uh, the price goes up, uh-huh. uh, the uh, s- s- sources of it, which are more costly to uh-huh. produce, start producing, so the cost goes up Right, exactly. course are determined by price. The amount of businessmen businessman willing to pay for copper is determined by how much copper products will sell among the consumers, so the chain, the cause will change from the consumers back to the, to manufacturers back to raw material, and uh, copper will be more expensive because if the demand for copper go products go up, which will then convert back to the increase in demand for copper. So, uh, <coughs> and this will also go to course the unions, because uh, many conservatives businessmen, blame unions for unions for inflation. Well, the inflation because unions jack up wage rates and therefore we have to increase prices. it's the same sort of thing. Uh, the uh, prices go up anyway or go down anyway regardless of unions, regardless of wage rates. And secondly, the question then asked is why, do, why entrepreneurs, are entrepreneurs and businessmen willing to pay the higher wage rates? I mean, why don't they say, we can't pay, we'll lose money. To pay it. The fact they're willing to pay it is a sign they're willing to, you know, that they're... The costs they're willing to incur are determined by what they think prices are they think price is gonna go up, they're willing to pay higher wage rates. So the cause will change, once again, that, uh, from the consumer. The only time when the cost will impinge on prices is if, if the supply goes down. Okay. If supply goes down, indeed, price will go up. If, uh, you know, if, it's, if, uh, if in some way, increased costs results in a lower price and low production, lower supply, then the price will go up. Um, You see this, for example, when, so we say that again. The only time the price will go up from the supply side is if if, if the supply goes down. Cost going up is not gonna do anything unless something happens with the supply also contracts. For example, if the the computer business or whatever, costs go up and you can't charge a higher price because you already charged the maximum price profitable. Then firms go out of business, let's say, they cut back production and then supply goes down and the price goes up. So it's not the cost that do it, it's the possible drop in supply. If you're looking for causes of inflation, of course, supply doesn't go down. Obviously production usually goes up every year. In a sense. We don't have a situation where every year production is within service of 10% less than the year before. Fortunately, not in that situation. So obviously it can't be the supply side of Causes the problem, and, uh, and obviously something in the demand side that's the, the <clears throat> for for general increase in prices. Uh, another another thing, for example, people tend to think that a sales tax or an excise tax can be just passed on by the, by the, by the businessman, just passed on to the consumer. Well, it doesn't work that way. Isn't that automatic? Uh, for example, usually when the price of movie uh, when the admission tax in movies goes up, very often the movie Owners, theater you owners, know, will circulate petitions. Don't you know, fight the tax. You know, write your city councilman or something against the emission tax. They wouldn't do that. They could just pass it on automatically. Well, know, why, why should they bother? If, if a tax is simply going to be passed on to the consumer with no other problem, the businessman wouldn't care. The problem is, of course, if it is passed on, the consumer spends less, supplies less of it, it's, you know, now. and, um, and you're going up the demand curve. In other words. Move the supply of movies or theaters is going to go down. going to be hurt, or the, the, the profit margin is going to go down. So uh, <clears throat> you can't just pass on a price. Okay, You have to, can only do it through a cut in supply. Is what to ask and nobody wants to cut supply unless you know they might be going out of business, they are contracting their business, etc. <coughs> uh, by the way, on the subject of taxes, it's kind of interesting because... Uh, Uh, at least in the United States, a lot of the tax... There is, of course, very heavy taxes on liquor for various reasons. Not nearly as heavy as Ontario. Really? Really. In the U.S., and that's really hurting our our convention and tourist business, in in the U.S., if you buy a drink in... uh, in a bar, mm-hmm. about sixty percent of the cost is taxed. In Ontario, it's about ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Taxes on taxes. And that on taxes really hard way to yeah, to That's, that's, yeah. that's hard to we, we go to We, we go to buy cheap wine. Wow. We wow. yeah. like uh, your tax. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. so part of that is, is, uh, is revenue, of course, for the government. Part of it is fundamentalism. Yes. Is liquor yes. is evil, and if we pay. Make the sinners pay. <laughs> Part of it comes in from, from businesses themselves. Um, for example, in the case of um, the United States, for example, there are fixed taxes on stills. They pay um, uh, a large fixed amount regardless of the size of the still. And what this does, obviously, is put in by large liquor manufacturers just, just to shaft their small competitors. If you have a fixed tax, if every, if every liquor producer has to pay, I don't know, a million dollars as a fixed amount regardless of how much they produce, obviously the small liquor person is forced out of business. And the big liquor people know that full well. For example, the hysteria we have in the Appalachian Mountains, we have a great tradition of the the moonshine heroic farmers, (laughs) (laughs) moonshiners, out there producing illegal liquor. Now why is it illegal? It's illegal because they don't pay the still tax, which is enormous, which prevents them from uh, from setting up their equipment. So there's a constant fight between the revenueers and the Engineers. Yeah. I guess it's a good note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, any quick questions before we wrap up the session? There's no such thing as a quick question. <laughs> I just have one comment there. That this fixed, uh, this fixed uh, amount of uh, of tax, but also various government interference. Yeah. Just the fact that it's the same amount of work for a small company and they got an income tax right. return as is for a large and There are all sorts of oh, yeah. these fixed things and they are what lead very much to the bigness of companies right. that we have. Absolutely. I don't think that in a free market there would be so many big yeah. companies in proportion to small companies. That's a big that's a big reason. For example, workman's compensation laws which came in 1900-1910, were put in largely by bigger businesses in one of the you have to have a certain, you know, all this paperwork and all the rest of it go into it. You want to impose higher costs on their smaller competitors and uh, drive them out of business. Awful limits. A lot of that's going on. So. Uh, just before we go, does anybody have a, a preference of a restaurant's recommendation here? Uh, well, I think um, I want to try to get more discussion here t- this time. Uh, going on to onto a more advanced so-called area, uh, obviously it's skipping a lot of stuff in between. And the logical change. But at any rate, uh, comparing I um, want to do a little bit more comparison of Austrian economics with orthodox economics and the political implications of them because we go on and along. Both uh, of these are taken micro and familiar. Well, for example, the <coughs> there are two well, several uh, motivations for antitrust legislation, antitrust action. And one of them I'm convinced, which is another story. Uh mostly one group of businessmen trying to shaft the other group, and uh, there are now, for example, in the United States, a lot of private antitrust suits. Controlled data corporation doesn't like IBM, because it's too efficient. They file a suit saying it's unfair competition, and they try to restrict them and request them from doing stuff. So there's a lot of that. A lot of the antitrust suits that have been filed over the years by the Department of Justice, a federal trade commissioner, or a done behest of one set of competitors trying to eliminate or cripple the other set. Yeah. So, in addition to that, there's, a, and of course there's also the uh, attorney motivation. One of the great, one of the attorneys, one of the ways you achieve fame and fortune in the legal profession in the United States, you become an assist- you're a young lad out of, uh, about a young lass also, uh, out of Harvard Law School, you become attached to the Attorney General Division of uh, Department of Justice, you work up an antitrust suit against DuPont you know, like or IBM or something, takes you about five years to become one of the world's foremost experts prosecuting IBM or DuPont, but then, lo and behold, you leave the Justice Department you become a chief attorney for IBM and DuPont fighting a suit. Okay? So this is uh, essentially, of course, a racket. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's one of the reasons for antitrust <laughs> prosecutions. Uh, this is quite prevalent. Anyway, any in the economic sphere, among economic theory, the big, which fits in both Ethereum theory and political application, the big, uh, <clears throat> a little bit weakened now, but still the big thing to read micro textbooks. That's that's always in there. The big reason for breaking up business, for for government regulation, for for uh, divesting parts and breaking up firms and all that sort of stuff, is uh, so-called monopolistic competition or imperfect competition you know, or whatever. The competition is not perfect. That. The competition is, does not meet the standards by which, beat, which economics uh, applies to the real world. And uh, <coughs> it goes uh, it goes something like it goes basically something like this. Uh, this is sort of a standard thing. There's a, there's a you know, another diagram. This is almost despite all the millions of words that have been written about the process, this is basically it. <coughs> we have uh Dollars, y axis, quantity produced on the x axis. Um, um, you have so called average cost curve, uh, which is considered to be U shaped. Right, that, 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 I don't know the whole thing on this because I don't think I don't agree with cost curves anyway. Uh, basically, it is the uh, common sense kind of way that uh, if uh, if you're building an automobile plant and you have this huge amount of equipment, you got you know two, hundred million dollars invested in equipment. If you produce one automobile per year, you're it's very costly because <laughs> you're geared for the optimum of you know a hundred thousand automobiles a year. If you're only producing mm-hmm. one, of course you're like you know I don't know two hundred fifty thousand dollars per per car or something like that. So if you like, look at average cost; it starts very high as you keep using up the equipment. What really is in the Austrian view. If, really is because of indivisibility. You have different kinds of machinery and buildings in order really to really use them in an optimal sense. Uh, if you start too low, you're going to be extremely costly per unit. Okay. So, as you keep going, then average cost declines. And then Finally, you reach a point where everything is sort of used to capacity or whatever, and you wind up, average cost turning up, right? you get a so-called U-shaped average cost curve. In other words, total cost in terms of dollars per year. Unit produced. Uh, the, um, the assumption is, by the way, that it's a smooth arc. is addition to various other problems, average cost. This addition the fact that you don't know what the cost is, because one thing, the cost depends on, on the time horizon. If you're going to produce something over a two year period, the cost will be one set of curves. If you produce it over five year period, another set of curves. You have a whole bunch of things going on which can't be. Incorporated into this. <clears throat> at any rate, you don't know, not only that, including everything else, just like you don't know the demand curve of any kind of particular shape, you don't know what the shape of this thing is. It doesn't have to be a smooth arc. All you know is it falls at one point, it finally reaches the bottom somewhere and then it goes up. That's all. Okay. It could be anything, it could be uh, something like that, could be something like this, it could be jagged, so whatever. So making it a smooth arc uh, leads to a very seemingly simple questions, seemingly trivial. Makes leads to all sorts of implications. You make it a smooth arc so you can get a tangency. You can't get a tangency to get something like that. What's a tangent? All right. Anyway, so that's the, uh, the firm. Uh, all right, that's the average cost per. For the, for the firm, little firm. Then you've got the demand curve. According to, I've uh, already talked about falling the falling demand curve, right? The curve always fall. According to neoclassical, Laurasian, current, mainstream, orthodox theory, uh, it's true the demand curve of the industry falls, but in, in the true, correct, proper uh, competition, uh, what they call perfect competition, perfect or pure. Notice the loaded terminology here. These are economists who claim to be value free Totally right if you no, no good application, moral They use they use the word perfect to me indicates as good, okay? Imperfect seems to be bad, All right, So at any rate, perfect competition is when the demand curve for each firm is horizontal. Perfectly totally horizontal like that. Now, uh, if you look at this thing, if you really analyze it, it's totally ridiculous, but how can you, you have a horizontal demand curve? The implication is that if, if you have like the famous example of the wheat wheat industry, right? each farmer is so small compared to the rest of the industry that he, he has no impact on the price of wheat. In other words, he can produce, he can multiply his product almost infinitely, maybe even infinitely, and still have no impact on the total supply of wheat. Therefore, whatever he does, the man of his particular wheat will be horizontal. And one of the problems with this is that, you know, if the angel Gabriel comes down to him and says, Zeke, I love you and therefore I'll give you, you know, I'll be able to multiply your wheat by two billion fold. So instead of, you know, whatever, bushels of acre you're getting, three billion times that, he will have an impact on the wheat market. It doesn't matter if he's a small farm. Okay, so that's, so it's not really horizontal, maybe slightly like that or so, something like that. <clears throat> as soon as you get that kind of, as soon as you enter any kind of um, qualification of this thing, the whole theory is shot. I'll show you why in a minute. that the horizontal, why do they assume that a horizontal, be, oh, so a small wheat farm, teeny little wheat farm has a horizontal demand curve for Zeke, Leak's wheat. On the other hand, every other firm in the real world has a falling demand curve because any firm, whether it's IBM or even whatever, controlled data or anything, will have some kind of impact. Wheaties, uh, underbred. underbread. if they keep producing more of it, they'll have to cut their price, they have an impact on the market, They're big enough. Yeah. This is to seem a question, but why are you talking about the supply Talking about these guys producing more or less, less, less supply. Yeah, the supply? Yeah, supply, sure. <coughs> sure. I don't think the supply curve I don't think there is a supply curve, what I've said before, except when I bring long run sets. That's one reason I don't know that. <laughs> but increases the supply of the product, the shift the vertical line to the right when you get a lease. And but if you have a if you have a firm which is infinitely small compared to the industry, if you have twenty thousand wheat farms, each wheat farm is teeny then you might get something like in theory to get something like horizontal anchor for each meat farm. Anything else is evil. Why is it evil? Why is it in- inefficient to have a larger firm which does have an impact on this market? And here is the here's the this, my friends, this is the, the reasoning behind it. And this is why the impetus of economics in the 30s until fairly recently was you should try to break up industry so that they approach the level of a small wheat farm. <coughs> break up firm. You have a if you have a smoothly arcing average cost curve, it's the same given the firm, right? Given the firm, important, firm X, producing widgets. If it has a horizontal demand curve, like that, okay, this average price, this means the average price is uh, $10 a widget, the average cost is $8 a widget, makes a profit $2 a widget, all right? An equilibrium, this is not the market equilibrium we're talking about, this is a different kind of equilibrium, this is a totally different kettle of fish, this is long run equilibrium. Long run equilibrium is such, <coughs> which the economy is supposedly in, not only tending to it but in according to the we'll orthodox economics, in long run equilibrium, nobody makes any profits, nobody makes any losses, because there's no uncertainty, I mean, it frees the economy, it frees the data, it frees value scales, which remain frozen forever you freeze resources, you freeze technology, uh, and that's it, you freeze everything. And then you wind up, if you do that, there's no uncertainty. If everybody knows in their heart, in their gut, in their mind, that everything will be exactly the same 2,000 years from now as it is now, the same values, the same production, the same knowledge, everything, then you will have. You'll wind up fairly soon in what's called finally general equilibrium. This is long in general equilibrium theory. A piece is called the evenly rotating economy. <coughs> Um, because there's no uncertainty, everybody adjusts to the situation. Everybody knows what, or even knows for two million years or whatever. That's certain you know X amount of TV sets going to be purchased, X amount of washing machines. It's all fixed. It's all freeze frozen on Angel Gabriel. And so you wind up then with a tangency, okay? And the magnificent heroic tangency occurs at zero profits. How do you, and zero, how do you make zero profits? Zero. It means mean your total revenue. <coughs> is equal to total cost, okay? Total money expended is the same as total money taken in. If total revenue is equal to total cost, and by definition, average revenue, which is which is total revenue divided by the amount you produce, okay, <coughs> X is the same as average cost. Average revenue is the same thing as the demand curve. Demand curve is the amount per total revenue per, uh, per quantity. The same thing as the price, okay. If in other words, you sell, <coughs> you produce 10 widgets, you produce 1,000 widgets for, and sell it for $10 a widget, you're getting, getting $10,000 in. Your total revenue is 10,000. Your, your number of widgets is 1,000, therefore this is the same thing as the price, which is 10 bucks for a widget. <laughs> All right, so in, in equilibrium, in final and general equilibrium, this is not market, this is not day-to-day equilibrium. This is this never this never on land, which you'll we'll see in a minute, never exists. never can exist, never will exist. In this situation, where everything is frozen forever, you will have each firm with price equal to average cost. All right. If <laughs> this thing is set, it's a beautiful it's a setup. <laughs> if you have a horizontal demand curve, for each firm, the only place you can be tangent is right at the bottom. It's the same firm as an imperfect monopolistic competition, which, right? my definition, definition. It means facing the falling demand curve. There's only one place can be tangent to it. It's falling, right? It's Falling demand curve, whatever it's falling, it has to be tangent somewhere over here. Yeah? So, and, and finally, equilibrium. And then these guys say, "Aha! you See, what do we conclude from this? We conclude from this as follows. If a firm," The economy is a perfect competition, which is this, by definition, perfect. Its production will be higher and its price will be lower than if it's an imperfect or monopolistic competition. QED, end of, the, end of the analysis. Therefore, consumers are being shafted by imperfect competition, of the real world. They are. They would benefit if every, if every firm was so tiny that they were being a perfect half fish. That is the, that is the conclusion, that's the basis for it, like trust legislation, and all the rest of them. Yeah, there are many holes in this argument. Maybe you, you, maybe you can supply me in some of the holes before I give like, them my blockbuster conclusion. <laughs> See any holes in this uh, line of reasoning? I didn't understand how you get the definition of perfect just by it just It's just called perfect. Darker. Yeah, it's the name is it's called perfect. Uh, one of the reasons because the knowledge is perfect by the way. You have perfect knowledge. You know what your man curve is, you know what your course curves are, you know what is, you need know perfect. perfect mobility of people. Perfect mobility. Right. <coughs> well for one thing, I mean this will never exist. I mean no perfect demand curve is going to be horizontal awesome, no matter what. Precisely. So everybody is imperfect to some small extent. So is getting kind of channel. And and this gives the excuse for the you set up an ideal, suppose an ideal. Perfection, which the market is failing all right, to, to achieve, and therefore the government then is supposed to have a rationale for stepping in and trying to create these perfect conditions. And then, uh, once again, once again cool. they've got the good word yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a great word. Right? <laughs> the other thing will be that a large firm will not necessarily have the same cost curve as a small firm. Ah! Okay, step number one. Who says that these curves are equal? Okay. Who says the cost curve, the average cost curve of a small firm is the same as a large firm? If we broke up, Schumpeter had a great analysis of this in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. It was a very interesting book. He was not a libertarian, a free market person. He had very interesting things to say. And uh, he wasn't an Austrian either. He was a Schumpeterian. At any rate. And essentially, one of the things he said was this. Okay, folks, let's assume you're right. Let's assume that in the present state of evil imperfection, we're up here instead of down here. But... Suppose you try to take General Motors and break it up, try to make it perfect, try to make it so that, break it up in teeny little pieces so that each one would be, have a horizontal anchor. We you have like you have 500,000 teeny little firms, each of which has a cost curve, however, way the hell up here, because you're not taking advantage of large scale production. So even though the consumers have a wonderful benefit of being down here on the bottom of this thing, they'd be, <laughs> they'd be paying a whole lot more for much less, okay? So let's hooker number one. Who says that the cost curves will be the same? In fact, the reason why there is a big larger business in many cases, but the cost curves are, are lower. You're taking advantage of large-scale production and in the visibility. You're able to buy, get a bigger machine and stuff like that. So that's, okay, that's hooker number one. Uh, yeah. Doesn't it require, does this allow new businesses to enter the market? I think it's all frozen here. It's yeah, frozen. that's what I was to right. say. It would require that everybody has to consume exactly the same amount so as they do now and not produce any more net people in the world right. at a net consumable level yeah. of their lives. Yeah, there's no innovation, there's no no discoveries. There's no absolute study. Things are given, as, they, as, the, cost, as, as the textbooks say. Yeah, it's absolutely we have given the main curves, given the cost curves, given products. And everything, all what real competition is really about, which is trying to find out what's going on, which is trying to beat out the other guy, which is trying to find out, invent new things, out-compete the other guy, all this is tossed aside, but you have perfect knowledge. Everybody knows the demand curve, everybody knows the product, everybody knows the cost curve, and then you're grinding this stuff out. Evenness, such yeah. a simple thing as equipment wearing out. Yeah, right. would throw this thing right out the window. I sure the standard of living would just keep going like this. I you know the something is the equipment is replaced automatically, so at the same rate that it's. Uh, it's the exact of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Not only are the cost curves different for different companies, as was pointed out, but the effect the of the free market will tend to produce the lowest cost curves right. for companies. And so if you right. break people up and are interfere with in any way, you're going to raise, you'll get. Higher cost curves, and therefore you get these equilibrium points for each individual Absolutely. company, higher up, oh. Right. Well, well, it's right. What will just happen, because the scale of the economy, will be that the cost curves would be imperfect, competitors will be lower, and they'll still be imperfect. And yes, yeah. The, public, but the price will still be lower. Exactly. You really have this sort of situation. Let's assume you're here, and you have the perfect the perfect will be teeny little firms that are at the bottom, whatever, the cost force curve is, but what's way the heck up there. Precisely it smooth. it might hit tendencies more than. pumps. Precisely. Now we come to this. this. Who says these curves are smooth? Nobody says. no evidence for any of this stuff. Again, the quality, what we know is qualitative, but they try to assume it's quantitative. There's no evidence that has to be like this. Sposing, for example, is one of my favorite things. Look at the cost curve is a little bumpy, like <clears throat> something like that. Then it only hits a tendency like here. I'm going to easily construct the situation. Where the, the, the falling demand curve is just as tangent at the same spot as the, 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 the horizontal one. Only a little twist here. And as I say, there's no evidence for any of this stuff. In fact, why think the smooth? Uh, the exact opposite of what somebody just mentioned. Uh, wouldn't they say, well, if you had General Motors and it ended up being the only car company, mm. then of course there's no, supposedly no limit on their, on their prices? Well, that's something else. Yeah, that's, that's not the cost problem, you see. That's a little different. That's, uh, now you're dealing with the real world where you're not assuming zero profits, and <laughs> zero losses. Oh. that's another. But that's an, no, that's an interesting area. That's uh, that whole cartels thing is uh, that uh, we should go into it because it's important it's anyway. There's two other things. One of them is you're assuming people are prepared to work for zero profit. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I can't see how if they're only small companies, people are prepared to work for zero profit. Why are they working for the zero profit? Well, the the yeah. um, they try to get around that the uh the two wings of thought trip air are self thought in general equilibrium there'd be zero profit i I much I don't know why you maintain your capital with zero profit or you just won't let the whole thing run down the more more rational view of it was that the profit would be more run rate of interest just enough three percent six percent whatever just enough to keep maintaining the capital and so you'd have wages of management'll take into consideration you have uh, it's supposed to its owner managed. Huh? It's supposed its owner managed. But yeah, but, but you, can, you can conceptually... conceptually it the real world, right? Yeah, well, you can conceptually separate it out. See, so, in other words, you say, well, here the guy owns his own firm. You can say, well, part of his returns are, are wages to, to uh, his management. Part of it is interest on his capital investment. You can sort of separate that. It it's obviously, very a practice. Conceptually, you can say, okay, he's got his labor of management, whatever that is, and he's got the, uh, the, the capital investment. You see, the capital investment is very different here. You're will no change. Everything's certain. Capital investment, then, is pure time for it's, it's The interest is, then, a function of how you have to wait, which is important. But you cut out profits and losses, which is the entrepreneurial part, okay, which is the other... Well, Austrians adopted this with Frank Knight, and I, even in some ways it wasn't Austria, And uh, that you take a return on, on Business firms on investment. There are two parts to it. There's a return for waiting, for just simply, for, well, for waiting in a sense of, uh, well, two things. One is the, uh, the, the capitalist provides to the workers and the landowners the other factors of production. It's important service. Uh, they, let's say, have a certain productivity They would get their return. Let's, well, let's put it this way let's, let's say you have corporations which are owned by the workers, the consumer producers, co ops, owned by workers and landlords. If they did that, they would they would have to get, let's say they get the same payment. Forget about differences in management and entrepreneurship. They would get, let's say they get the same, whatever, I guess $10,000 a year, get it. But you have to wait three years or six years, whatever, for the, the product to come rolling off the assembly line before he gets it. You have to wait if they have no, no paycheck until the money comes in. Essentially, that's what happened now in Yugoslavia, which are more or less worker-owned firms. They have to wait, which is a tough proposition. Many people don't have the capital and don't want to wait Capitalist provides, even in a world without without uncertainty, capitalist provides the savings to provide the money to pay them now before the three years. They don't have to wait for this service. The workers, in a sense, pay him the capitalist a discount. They pay him the time preference discount. They pay him six percent, eight percent, whatever. They're happy to do that because they're getting money now instead of having to wait three, six years for it. That's the time preference. Right, really, our interest. Where you have a um, uh, where uh, essentially in a time in a time market, this is one of the contributions of Wall Austrians, by the way. Interest is not just a loan, it's the whole the whole profit system, interest pervades the whole capitalist system or market system. Uh on a loan it's very easy to see this, right? Uh, and by the way, we're our interest. Uh <coughs> the, um, the creditor, okay, let's say, gives to the debtor an exchange, or the creditor gives to the debtor right now, say, $10,000, and he, in return for an IOU, saying, I will pay you whatever $11,000 a year from now. Okay, so, These two, but the, so what some of the creditor is doing is giving the debtor command over immediate resources to use the money right now, which is what he wants, the debtor. He wants to pay stuff, buy stuff, invest it, whatever. So this is a present good. This is what things call a present good this is something which is, this money is useful right now. On the other hand, this IOU is a future good. It's only, the creditor can only get cash it in, or start using the money a year from now. So this So, the debtor the is exchanging $10,000 present money for future money, present good for future good. Because present good, because of time preference, which everybody has in different ratios, everybody prefers money now to money later, the, in, the, in the time market, which is worked out between creditors and debtors, or between uh, everybody when they really have time preference, a, a certain rate comes out, let's say 8%, 6%, 10%, whatever, in this case 10%, where both parties agree in this, in this time preference price that they will pay a discount, a premium of 10% for present good or a discount 10% of future good. So in other words, the payment of interest is a payment for time preference. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the Catholic Church and scholastic philosophers are extremely bright economists, they worked out a lot of the stuff I've been talking about, a lot of utility theory, and a lot of market analysis that were very pro-free market, as a matter of fact. And it's amazing in many cases, a lot of these guys were Franciscan monks who were living in a hut somewhere, in a cave somewhere for 50 years, and worked out a very sophisticated analyses of the market. And uh, the one thing they couldn't hack, the one thing they couldn't understand is time purpose. In other words, they could understand about risk, they about uncertainty and profit, they all feel that, right? They couldn't understand why it's legitimate, moral, illicit to earn an interest on a pure loan, just a pure loan, with no other nothing else attached. And they couldn't they, they therefore they concluded it was sinful and evil, a post-natural law, and outlawed it. All interest was outlawed by the Catholic Church for centuries, thousands of years or so. And it was really tragic because it meant that nobody after a while, by the 18th century or so, and everybody, of course, everybody came in favor of interest, they didn't understand my time period. They more or less realized that interest was important. These usury laws—they were called were the spread of this financial economics altogether. These guys, are, these guys are nutty. The whole, the whole concept, the whole analysis went out the window. The baby was thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. And uh, the, uh, so its too bad they understood about risk, opportunity cost, and all that. They understood that you could make twenty percent. By investing in, a, in a, some kind of sea voyage, it's okay to charge 20% for a loan because then you're, you're giving up the other 20% you would have gotten. All that sort of stuff, very sophisticated. They couldn't understand a pure loan they, didn't have, they never grasped about a time purpose. <laughs> time purpose, by the way, was the discovery of Bombardier, like I mentioned before, <coughs> 1880s. And before that, well, some people, Arturgo, also, Arturgo was a really great guy who had forgotten French pre French Revolution statesman. And basically, these were these people really copper riveted why it is charged, why it's explainable, why it's understandable, why it's moral to one for it that way, et cetera, et cetera, and why it's being done. Otherwise, it was always seemed that somehow the creditor was ripping off the debtor one way or the other. <coughs> it was never explained why the debtor would want to agree to pay this, by the way. It was one of the hitches in the argument. Um, so so we see how this works in pure loan. But as Bob pointed out, Fetter. Great American Austrian point out afterward, Frank Fetter, and unfortunately generally neglected magnificent value and price and demand market theorist. Uh, that this whole thing pervades the economy. If you take, for example, forget about a loan for a minute. Here's a capitalist um, who. Um, so what does he do? He he buys. He saves up money. Okay, by not spending it. stop spending it. Saves up money. He then. He then pays workers, landlords, or whatever, for their product production, right, for their productive services. So he is paying them, let's say he pays some worker $10,000. This is the employer now, the capitalist. And the employee gets the money, and he gets uh, the employee, employee gives the employer the labor services which are then incorporated into the product, so to speak, helping to transform the product eventually sold. So if it's, let's say it's worth uh, 12000 12,0. In other words, the amount the employee produces, so-called marginal product. Oh no pressure, how you get to that. Assuming that. The employer pays him, say, ten thousand because and the employee is willing to accept it because the employer is getting it, employee is getting it right now. He doesn't have to wait five years to get it. And so what's happening is the employer is providing a present good. The employee is giving the employer a future good, which the employer will reap, you know, after the thing that produces so. So what happens is you have a vast time market, which is good, uh, where the employer is essentially the creditor, not legally, but economically, the employee is the debtor. He's getting the money, he's getting the present good now, and the employee pays the employer same sort of interest return, it's called natural interest, <coughs> I'm a barber, uh, uh, that the debtor pays the creditor. And in the, in the long run, the tendency is towards making these things be equal. Of course, it never reaches equality, like those sorts of other things happen. Tendency is to have a similar rate uh, in one area and the other, <coughs> because we can, you know, you can earn 20% in one place and 5% in another place. People have to shift out of the 5% into the 20%. It the tends toward equalization. Never gets there. That's the long-running it Tends toward it. <coughs>